Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 6, The Giant Killers. In a mountain cave above Martelyek, there lived a cold giant called Ledenech. He bullied everyone who dared to come near him. He breathed an icy breath, and he danced and screamed with joy when it snowed. The only things he was scared of were the sun and fire. One day, Ledenech decided to create a mountain next to his cave. He called all the other giants that he controlled and ordered them to build him one. The work was hard, and the giants soon tired of carrying rocks, but Ledenech would not let them rest. When he finally fell asleep in his cave, the angry giants stacked up a pile of firewood at the cave entrance and set it aflame. Unable to escape, Ledenech suffocated from the smoke and started melting. To the present day, he continues to melt, and his remains flow from under the mountains into the Martelyek stream. For much of its history, Slovenia has not had control of its own destiny. It was always part of someone else's empire, always bullied by a giant, often a battleground for someone else's war. And yet, through that time, it retained its language, culture and traditions, and waited for its opportunity. At much the same time that other national movements were growing in countries like Finland and Germany, the mid-1800s, a similar movement was growing in Slovenia, at that time a territory that was passing back and forth between the Habsburg Empire and the French. Into the 20th century and Slovenia was a poker chip in the game of World War I, then a reluctant entrant into the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, then a victim of the growing repression as Yugoslavia shifted from a collection of Balkan states to a Soviet satellite after World War II. Throughout, Slovenia retained a strength of cultural identity, and there's a huge body of literature, philosophy and poetry that emerged from some of those very dark times. Slovenia's time came in the late 1980s, when Yugoslavia was starting to tear at the seams. It was a tense but bloodless transition, led by calls for political change and supported by enough civic demonstration and strengthening of borders and barricades that the Yugoslavian army was forced to hold their fire. Slovenia's neighbours were not all so lucky. Slovenia is a very small nation, it's only 2 million people, which makes it the 33rd largest country in terms of population size in Europe, or number 149 on the list of world population rankings. And this brings me to the theme of this week's podcast. I talked about underdogs in episode 3 and why we root for the unexpected winner. This time I'm interested in why small countries have sporting success that seems disproportionate. And why Slovenia? Well, this nation of two million people has produced two of the best road cyclists in recent years, Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic, as well as a cycling squad with huge strength and depth. In addition, Slovenia has the best ski jumping squad of the moment, with champions in both the men's and women's sports. And who knows, maybe with Anna-Maria Lampic, they have a biathlon champion of the future too. As well as exploring the sporting success or otherwise of small nations, I'll be looking ahead to the racing in Plakruka in Slovenia, which starts tomorrow. But first, a quick recap of some things that happened over the Christmas period. The period between Christmas and New Year saw the return of the World Team Challenge to Gelsenkirchen in Germany. It's kind of a celebrity all-stars format, with a day of biathlon skills challenges and short relay races, which follow tracks outside and into an indoor arena for shooting in front of a loud and partisan crowd. The main takeaway was that the single mixed relay combination of Fabien Claude, 
and Julia Simon for France looked fantastic, especially in the pursuit format. They were obviously enjoying themselves and shooting with great freedom and speed. Watch out for them this weekend when we have a single mixed relay in Pekluka. We've also learned that Marta Olsbu-Roisland will be returning to World Cup action this week, and I'll have more on this later. So, on to this week's main topic. How is it that small nations seem to overachieve in sports? Well, firstly, let's bust a little bit of the myth. The most successful sporting nations, in terms of numbers of Olympic medals, for example, tend to be the largest. The USA, China, Russia have all had long and sustained successes across multiple sports because of a combination of population, investment and cultural importance placed on national achievement. But if size of population was the only determining factor, then we would expect India and Brazil to have similar widespread successes. However, their successes have been more specific, India in cricket and Brazil in football and only very recently in gymnastics. Research finds that these big macro-level factors – population size, wealth, land mass and cultural characteristics – explain about 50% of the differences in international sporting success between nations. But we also have to look at national sports policies, individual athletes and the immediate local environment to explain more about why countries do well. And this is where smaller nations start to step up. There's a framework called SPLIS which stands for Sports Policy Factors Leading to International Sporting Success. This identifies nine factors that make a real difference. These are funding, governance, management and culture, levels of programme, so elite, pre-elite and participation levels of activity, talent identification and development systems, athlete welfare and support systems, high quality training facilities, high quality formal coaching, a coordinated national programme of competition, ideally with international competition too, and the availability of good sports science, medicine and research. There's a lot to unpack here and some really interesting research and analysis um, is available if you check the links on the transcript that comes with this podcast. So here are just some observations from me which I think are interesting when we think about why smaller nations have success. Firstly, uh, funding and resources. When we think about the level of funding, this often depends on the sport. Some sporting organisations are rich and well-resourced and others aren't. Often that's related to a combination of factors. If you have a lot of participants at junior, grassroots and lower levels, you can create a larger organisation to coordinate them. Often this is, means drawing subscriptions and fees from those participants to take part in your sport. Also, if you have a sport that is attractive to television or streaming audiences, you can sell rights and advertising. If you have a stadium sport, you can sell tickets and sponsorship. And if you then have some success in that sport, you can probably attract more participation, so more revenue, and more income from government or commercial sponsors. In addition on funding, at the individual level, some sports are associated with levels of wealth or education. In the UK, our alpine skiers have historically come from middle class or wealthier families who were able to afford repeated trips to the Alps to give their children the opportunity to learn and to train. Equally, some sports have no or low costs to play. Running and soccer are two clear examples. 
and you can see less affluent countries having great success in creating programmes around these. For many people, sport is seen as an escape from poverty. We can point to Jamaican sprinters, African footballers, even Americans from low-income, often black communities, entering American football and basketball. Researchers in Cyprus found that young sports people from poorer backgrounds achieved more than their richer counterparts, perhaps because of a perceived lack of other educational or professional opportunity. If sporting success was related to income or GDP, then Japan, for example, should be much more successful than it is. So there are certainly other cultural factors at play. Resources can also mean access to facilities to train and to practice. Slovenia has produced a long history of successful ski jumpers, in part because ski jumping hills were built way back in the 1930s. These have formed part of Slovenia's sporting landscape for decades, enabling a national programme which has lasted through the turbulence of political change. Similarly for cycling. The earliest cycling clubs in Slovenia date back to the 1880s, but the period of growth came after World War II in the communist Yugoslavia era, when workers at the state bicycle factory, the ROG bicycle factory, set up a cycling club. This spawned others, which were also related to state-owned equipment manufacturers, like a tyre company. This meant that competitive cyclists had access to free equipment, a tradition that continued until recently. Riders like Tadej Pogacar and Matej Mohoric had free access to bikes and equipment when they joined cycling clubs as children, getting past some of those resource barriers that I mentioned earlier. Related to facilities is environment and the influence that environment has on the cultural prioritisation of sports. As we heard in episode one, the rolling snowy landscapes of the Nordic countries meant that cross-country skiing was a part of everyday life almost before it was a sport. Another environmental factor is altitude. We'll see this in the biathlon world when we get to Antholz later this month. Racing there is at higher altitude, which places different demands and challenges on the body. We often see Dorothea Vera, who comes from that area of Italy, perform really well at Antholz, while others struggle. Back to the organisation of sports and having programmes at different levels. This goes back to the point about having a strong grassroots or community base of athletes. If you have a decent sized population of players, then you can build a system which can include scouting, nurturing and professionalisation. Once you move towards professionalisations, then athletes have the ability to train and compete without having to have a day job. In India, the 1000th best cricketer in the country probably makes a comfortable living and can devote themselves fully to their sport and get better. The number one cricketer in the USA better have a day job. It's just not a priority there in the same way. And you can certainly see the jump in performance and outcomes when people have the opportunity to move from amateur to professional status and compete full time. Another aspect of programmes at different levels is about having high level competition within a nation. This is seen by a lot of the research as a real factor for success. However, Iceland is a great example of a small nation what, recognising what it can and can't do. Iceland has a population of 330,000 and no professional sports leagues, and yet its soccer, basketball and handball teams have all qualified for major international tournaments in recent years. Iceland has great grassroots participation in sports, but it doesn't have the critical mass to have high-level professional leagues. So its sports people often live and compete overseas, and the national sporting organisations can focus on grassroots sport and the supporting framework for the national team. 
Another factor related to elite sports is how well the concept of elites sits within a culture. In the Scandinavian countries, the emphasis on the welfare state and providing access to sport for all were often at odds with a desire to push sports funding for an elite. This lingered in some of the Scandinavian countries, putting them slightly behind others when it came to advancement in sporting outcomes. Lastly on this, there's a concept from economics, which can also get applied to sports, which is called talent capitalisation. Malcolm Gladwell writes about this and gives the example of a high school of, say, a thousand students. Let's say that 10 of those students are really good at chemistry. Some schools and some countries will be able to capitalise on this. That is, they will recognise and nurture that chemistry talent, value chemistry as a discipline, encourage people towards it and pay them well. Other schools and countries won't. They will push people with an aptitude in chemistry towards other things that they value more, for example, software development or investment banking. Talent capitalisation is about making the most of the talent and potential that is available to meet the needs of that school or country or sporting team. I'm conscious that to me Slovenia seems like a successful sporting nation, but that this may be because they're successful at sports that I enjoy watching, Nordic sports and cycling. Other nations won't be on my radar because they prioritise something else. And this leads to the wider observation that there is something about which sports a nation prioritises. That in itself is a combination of environment, culture and resourcing. A small country with a rich indigenous sporting tradition might put the majority of its funding to sports which don't really have much international awareness. Ireland, for example, puts an awful lot of money into Gaelic sports which are central to the country's culture but which don't feature in the Olympiad. Often countries will start with a specialisation, for example Kenya and Ethiopia, with middle and long distance running, and then expand out to other sports. We're now seeing champion discus throwers and sprinters coming from East Africa. In larger countries you have more sports being played, more different sports being played. Athletic skill often can apply to multiple sports. If you're a top athlete in India and can play cricket, you're going to play cricket. In the US, even if you love cricket, you'll probably get further playing baseball. Larger nations are also tending towards homogeneity in their sports programmes. They're all doing the same thing, often because they are recruiting coaches and administrators who've had success for one nation and asking them to repeat that success in a new country. In sports like biathlon and ski jumping, we see coaches moving from nation to nation. You can see the improvement in shooting from the Chinese biathlon team because of the coaching involvement of Ole Einar Bjorndalen in the run-up to the last Olympics. However, whilst repeating another country's experience will accelerate you to the level of that country, you will catch up quickly. Will you be able to go any further? Smaller nations don't have the luxury of investing in all sports, so they may well specialise in a few key sports where they have the particular environmental, resource or cultural advantages. And this is where sports kind of meets economics. Smaller nations often perform better than larger in economic terms too, in part because they are forced to specialise. I've mentioned the word culture quite a few times without really delving into it. I'm bringing a few strands together. Cultural influences over sport can be significant. A country like Ireland has placed Gaelic sports at the heart of its national culture, specifically to reinforce its difference from its past colonisers. The Nordic countries have a culture built around travelling over snowy landscapes, Skiing is not something you learn as a leisure activity, it's something you do to enable everyday life. Some countries place a high premium on athletic achievement and physicality in itself. Australia, for example. 
while others like China and Russia place a premium on winning to make a geopolitical point. For some, winning is enough, and for others it's about the sport itself. New Zealand is about both rugby union and winning. If a sport has a deep cultural tradition, more people are going to play it and get good at it, the country will develop an infrastructure to support it, and the country and the team will get better and better. Another key cultural aspect is whether people have the opportunity to play sports. Gender, race and other structural discriminations can limit or even remove people's opportunities to take part in sports. This is inevitably going to limit a country's ability to succeed in sporting terms as well as in many other aspects of life. Finally, there is the power of the successful individual as an enabler of change. It doesn't always happen. Britain, for example, has usually had one alpine skier in the top 30 at any given time, but hasn't really been able to leverage that into consistent, widespread success. We have long had a very similar situation in tennis. But sometimes those individuals who seem to come from nowhere can catalyse a bigger change. This gets me thinking about biathlon in comparison to, say, cycling. What would be the implications for biathlon and other winter sports if people didn't compete in national teams, but in sponsored teams? So if there was a Jumbo Visma team or an Ineos, recruiting stars and emerging talent from across the world, and a league that ran more on these identities than on nationalities. I'm not advocating for this, by the way, but it's an interesting thought experiment, and I'd welcome your views. Back to the biathlon. Uh, this week in Pekluka, we are really starting to look ahead to the World Championships in February, but there are three race meets between now and then. So we've got Pekluka this week, Ruppolding in Germany, and then Anholz in Italy. This is often the time of year when biathletes start to really focus their training towards the World Championships. Remember, the World Cup is the ongoing, ongoing season-long competition. The World Championships are the medals-type competition. So we may see some people sitting out some of the World Cup meets, whilst others really start to come into form. Another thing to note in the next few, few weeks, potentially the lack of snow. I talked about climate change in episode 4, in the run-up to the racing at Annecy Le Grand Bonnet. If you've been watching winter sport over Christmas and the New Year, you'll know that much of Western and Central Europe has been experiencing incredibly high temperatures, more like June than January, and that we've seen ski resorts having to pivot to mountain biking and hiking offers in what would normally be peak season. Listen back to episode four for more on this. So the schedule for this week, I'm recording this on Wednesday the 4th of January, so tomorrow, Thursday the 5th of January, at 1.20 UK time, we will have the women's sprint over seven and a half kilometers. Then on Friday, again at 1.20, Friday the 6th of January, we have the men's sprint over 10 kilometres. On Saturday, we have the double header of pursuit races, starting with the women at 10.30, followed by the men at 1.45. And then on Sunday, we have two relays. The single mixed relay will start at 10.45, and then the mixed relay at 1.25, and I'll give you a bit more on those in a moment. So what do, I, what do we expect this weekend? Well, on the women's side, this week sees the return of Marta Olsbu-Roisland of Norway. She was last year's World Cup winner and was dominant last season. She had the perfect blend of skiing speed and shooting accuracy, 92% in the prone and 89% in the standing, as well as determination to win. She just would not give up on any race and she only finished outside the top 10 once in the World Cup season. She also picked up three goals and two bronzes, so five medals out of six races at the Olympics in Beijing. Now, we don't know what her fitness level will be like. She's missed the first half of this season after illnesses from last year lingered. So she'll be out of race practice. 
but it will be very interesting to watch her develop over the next few weeks and I expect she'll be very competitive at the World Championships in early February. The other person we hopefully will see this week is Anna Maria Lampic from Slovenia. You may remember her bursting onto the scene before Christmas with an unexpected fifth place in her World Cup sprint debut. That result was based on good enough shooting but exceptional ski speed. She's a cross-country specialist just making the transition to biathlon. This will be a home race for Lampic and the other Slovenians, so there may be some advantage from being at a familiar track and range. That said, there will also be the added pressure of a very partisan crowd, which can be a disadvantage for less experienced athletes, as I mentioned in episode 4. So some predictions for the women. Um, Well, if Elvira Erberg can shoot as she did just before Christmas, then I'd pick her for the sprint, with the likes of Lisa Vitozzi and Lisa Teresa Hauser close by. I'd also love to see Hannah Erberg coming into form. As for the pursuit, you're not getting me to bet against Julia Simon in a pursuit right now. She loves the chase, but she also has the discipline on the range and the patience to wait for the race to come to her. On the men's side, the narrative now is all about Johannes Tingisbo and Stura Holm Ligrid, and whether Ligrid can stay close enough to apply pressure to Johannes. At some point, the pressure is going to break both of them, and we'll get someone else on top of the podium. I think this week the sprint is between the two of them and will be decided by Johannes's shooting. The pursuit opens up more opportunities for others, uh, Fabien Claude will be full of confidence, and it would be interesting to see if both Quentin Fillon Maillet from France and Sebastian Samuelsson from Sweden can find some form following the Christmas break. This week we also have both types of relay. Uh, the single mixed relay features a national duo, one male and one female biathlete. The race has four legs. Um, The first biathlete shoots twice, then hands over to the second. They shoot twice, then hand back, and so forth. So there are eight shoots in total, and a ski distance of 13.5 kilometres. As I'm reading this out, I realise it sounds way more complicated than it is. They take it in turns, they shoot quite a lot. It's just fun. Anyway, we also have the team relay. Four skiers, two male, two female, um, and each leg features two shoots, so a prone shoot, then a stand, and then hands over to the next skier. One thing to make note of in the relays, you get three spare rounds in your rifle. So if you miss a shot, instead of going straight to the penalty loop, you can load an extra round into your rifle and try the shot again. That adds four or five seconds to your shooting time. If you use up all three of your spare rounds and you still haven't hit all the targets, that's when you have to go around the penalty loop. Effectively, you have eight shots to try and hit five targets. It's a really good way of keeping the race closer for longer, but it can be hard to keep track of the numbers. As I mentioned earlier, if Julia Simon and Fabien Claude are paired for the single mixed relay, they'll be hard to beat. In the team relay, obviously Norway and France are going to be competitive, but look out for Sweden and Germany who have some strength and depth. The German women in particular are great shots and getting faster on their skis, so they could well get into the mix. One last thing. Do small countries know that they are small? Turns out that almost two thirds of the world's nations have populations of 10 million or less and almost half of nations have less than 5 million inhabitants. So maybe it's the large nations that are the weirdos. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on Twitter, at skishootrepeat. We're also on Instagram, skishootrepeat, but a lot more happens on Twitter. Please do get in touch to tell me what's right and what's wrong. I've said before that this podcast is built on love rather than knowledge, so I do expect to get fact-checked. 
Also let me know what you'd like to hear about in any future episodes and any questions you have about biathlon or the other topics that I wander off into during these talks. Um, next week I will be looking back at Pukuka, looking ahead to the racing in Rupolding in Germany and exploring some other topics that may or may not have much to do with this great sport. Thanks for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.